the passage Deemer will be preaching from this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you would, go ahead and turn there in your Bible. I believe we're going to put that on the screen as well for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're here this morning and you need a Bible and would like a Bible, then just raise your hand. We've got extras in the back, and we can get those to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. One of the most profound passages in all of Scripture regarding our salvation. So as we read these words, I want you to let them sink in so that your heart might be prepared to be changed by his word. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. God's word says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you would take this word and like a sharp double-edged sword, do a work on each and every one of our hearts. God, help us to see that salvation is only from you. Not only is it only through you, it is only from you. So God, I pray this morning, if there's any one of us here, myself included, Deemer included, that have any sort of self-righteousness built up in our heart, any sort of pride and arrogance thinking that we've done something, that we've done something to impress you, we've done something to deserve to be saved, God, that you would strike that from our hearts right now and help us to see the glory of this passage. The glory is that it's all about you and that it's all from you. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would just be with Deemer, fill him with your words, fill him with your Holy Spirit, fill us with your Holy Spirit. A sermon is not a one-way communication, Lord. It is an interactive thing. We are to respond as you speak through your word. So, God, now we pray that you'd be with us during this time. We give you all the glory in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And good morning and happy Reformation Sunday to you. Um, Roughly 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation began under the leadership of Martin Luther and some other bold, courageous leaders who were very concerned about teachings that were cropping into the church that were unbiblical, that were false. And out of that movement, out of the Protestant Reformation, came what we know to be the five solas. And we began this series last week, the five solas of the Reformation. Sola, that word meaning only. 
Last week, Steve covered two of those solas, uh, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, that the, that the Bible alone is our sole authority, not what some man says, not what some church says, not tradition, but the word of God. And then the other sola that we talked about last week, uh, sola Christus, in Christ alone. Christ is our only mediator. We don't need a priest. We don't need another person uh, to, uh, uh, to, to come and, and, and be that mediator between us and God. Christ is that man. Christ alone is that mediator. And today we're going to talk about the other three solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, and sola deo gloria, the glory of God alone. And uh, let's uh, take a look at the first one uh, that we'll talk about today. Sola gratia. Salvation is by grace alone. Now, what does grace mean? We probably need to get a handle on what that word means before we talk about it. And I found something very helpful from, another, uh, from a writer, uh, a, a Christian teacher. He defined grace this way. It helped me. I hope it'll help you as well. When we use the term grace, and when we use the term grace alone, what we mean is that our salvation from the wrath of God, our deliverance from hell, is, is because of something good in God, not because of anything good in us. And thus, when we speak of grace alone, sola gratia, we are speaking of the fact that God saves us because of his mercy and his graciousness towards us, and not because of something, indeed not because of anything in us that makes us desirable to God. Now, this runs counterintuitive to virtually every religion in the world. While religions may teach that we need God for salvation, they, they also teach that God needs us for salvation, that God needs our cooperation for salvation. In other words, salvation becomes sort of a spiritual tag team. Uh, you've got both parties contributing something to the process of redemption. This is virtually what all religions teach. This is what Martin Luther and the Reformers were fighting against in the 16th century. Now, while the Catholic Church in the 16th century did believe, certainly, that God's grace was necessary for salvation, was a part of salvation, the Church also believed that something more was needed for salvation. Man's work man's efforts, man's deeds were needed to make God's saving grace operative in his life. A man could cooperate with God uh, in the process of redemption by participating in the sacraments, such as baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, or by doing other good works and religious deeds. And these good works actually became meritorious. In other words, they actually counted for something towards your salvation. Now, this belief is not unique to 16th century Catholicism. Virtually everyone in the world believes this to one degree or another. Most people, whether they are religious or whether they are irreligious, believe that when they stand before God, they will be allowed into heaven based on some, something good inside of them and some good works that they have done. I've talked to many people over the years of all different kinds of stripes, all different kinds of religious backgrounds and irreligious people as well. And I hear common things that kind of crop up in these conversations over and over again when I ask them why God should allow them into heaven when they die. They may not say it exactly these ways, but, but this is the essence of what I hear coming from folks. And maybe you've heard these things too. I'm basically a good person. Now, I know I'm not perfect, 
but I try real hard to do the right thing. I know that. I know I'm not perfect, but I try. At least I haven't murdered anybody. God knows my heart, so God understands. And I hear these things over and over and over again. And, I, and by the way, I am sorry to tell you this, but after 500 years of Protestants beating the drum of the five solas, I'm so sorry to tell you that the Roman Catholic Church is still resisting sola gratia. You know what the official teaching of the Catholic Church is regarding sola gratia? Now, I want you to hear this. I'm not making this up. And as I read this statement, I, I want you to see if you can tell how this statement undermines not just sola gratia, but all five of the solas. This is part of the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. This came out of Vatican II. Listen to this quote. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do His will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those two may, be, may achieve eternal salvation. Now, it is truly impressive, friends, that in one short sentence like that, the church can totally undermine all five solas in one fell sweep. Now, that's official, folks. That's part of the Catholic catechism. You can go to the Vatican's website, and read it for yourself. Now, I know that not every Catholic person believes that. I know that. But that's, that's the word from the top down. That statement is one of the most outrageous things I've ever heard from an organization claiming to be Christian. There, there, is, there is so much wrong with that statement that I don't even know where to begin. But I was thinking this week in particular about how that statement undermines sola gratia, grace alone and assumes that there is some kind of inherent goodness in people, even people who don't know Jesus Christ. These people can make it to heaven based on their own merit with a pinch of God's grace thrown in. And I, and I just don't want to pick on the Catholic Church. That sentence in the Catholic Catechism perfectly captures where the whole Western world is going religiously. That statement could have come from the mouth of Oprah as much as it could have come from the mouth of the Roman Catholic Church. And the problem is that people who believe such have truly underestimated man's condition. Now, we all know that we are per imperfect, right? We all agree that we are sinners. But the situation is a lot more grave than most people think, I'm afraid. Let's go back to Ephesians 2, what, what Steve just read to us. Look at Ephesians 2. Now, in Ephesians, in this chapter of Ephesians, Paul is describing the salvation process to the believers of the church of Ephesus, and he is reminding them of their condition before they were saved, and then he's going to go on and explain how God saved them, what God did for them. Now look at this. First of all, Paul describes man as dead. Look at verse 1 with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins and which you once walked. The Bible does not describe man as someone who is trying to do good, but just can't make it and just needs a little extra help in the right direction. The Bible describes man as worse than that. The Bible describes man as spiritually dead. Man is dead and unresponsive towards God and has no ability to please God. A dead man doesn't try to do anything. A corpse is just lying there unresponsive to things, unable to do anything. 
But more than that, Paul doesn't just describe our condition before Christ as dead. He describes us as slaves. Look at this again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And who were we slaves to? The scripture says the prince of the power of the air, that is another title, for Satan. So we're dead to God, but we're alive to Satan. To God, we are spiritually a corpse. We are cold. We are unresponsive. We're just lying there on the ground. To Satan, we're alive. We responded to him. Uh, The Bible says we're actually uh, walking around, following after him. Wherever he led, that's where we went. But then it gets worse. Not only were we dead, spiritually dead and helpless, not only were we slaves, but the Bible goes on to say we were willing slaves. We were accomplices with Satan in this cosmic rebellion. Look at it again. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And check this out, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul is describing all of us before Christ saves us. We were a people who indulged in sinful desires and rebellion against God. We were slaves for sure, but we were willing slaves. Paul is reminding us of our state before coming to Christ, before our salvation. He's not describing a bunch of people who are basically good people, but they make mistakes every once in a while, and and they need just a gentle shove in the right direction. Instead, Paul is telling us, you have a people here who are totally dead to God, They they are slaves to Satan, and they are eager to give themselves over to their sinful passions and rebellion against God. That's how every one of us in this room was before God saved us. So when the Catholic Catechism says that those who do not know Christ can be saved when they seek God, they are wrong. There are no such people. Outside of Christ, people are dead, according to Ephesians 2. And if that's not strong enough for you, hear what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. And coincidentally enough, in Romans 3, Paul is writing to an audience that thinks that they can get into heaven by being good enough. Romans 3, verse 10, Paul says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He goes on to say, All have turned aside. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then in verse 20 of Romans 3, Paul goes on to say, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sights. And when the Catholic Catechism declares that people can be saved by trying to do the will of God according to the dictates of their conscience, they are wrong. People outside of Christ are not trying to do God's will. They are slaves to the prince of the power of the air and slaves to their own sinful passions and appetites. As Paul says in Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. And check this out, it says, indeed, it cannot Submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh, Paul says, cannot please God. 
And when someone says they'll go to heaven, because God knows their heart, and God understands, they're wrong. It's precisely because God knows your heart that you are under condemnation and the threat of wrath in eternal hell. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2, by nature, we are children of wrath. God knowing your heart is not a comfort. Believe me. Other religions, other worldviews sugarcoat man's condition. Islam is too optimistic about the human condition. Muslims think obeying a set of rules is sufficient. Mormonism is too optimistic. They think we can actually work our way to godhood. Oprah is too pessimistic. Buddhism is too... I mean, Oprah's too optimistic, sorry. Buddhism is too optimistic. Your average American pseudo-religious Joe is too optimistic. Only the Bible forces us to look, look in the mirror and look ourselves in the face and, see, and have us see ourselves for what we really are. Dead, slaves, rebels, corrupt, hell-bound. And don't you feel encouraged now? <laughs> Sermon's over. Go home and go take on the world with that kind of message. No, just kidding. Stay there. Seriously, though, the word gospel means good news. And we will never realize how good the good news is until we understand how bad the bad news is. Where is the good news? The good news is in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. Look at it. Look at it. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God... And oh, how everything hinges on those two words. I love the drama here as Paul is writing this. There's this sense of escalation and this growing sense of despair. You were dead in trespasses and in sins. Worse, you were slaves. Worse, you were willing slaves. Worse, you are by nature children of wrath. It's just snowballing and getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And then in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved, the Apostle Paul says. And there it is. Sola gratia. When things look the darkest and the bleakest for humanity, when we were feeling the very heat of hell on our foreheads as we inch closer and closer to eternal, to eternal wrath, God steps in and rescues us. We just sang about rescuing a, little, a moment ago. And that is what grace is, my friends. Now, you've heard the proverb, God helps those who help themselves. How many have heard that proverb, God helps those who help themselves? Most of you have. That's not even in the Bible. Most people think that it's in the Bible. I've read polls, polls that say that uh, you know, well over half of Americans think that that phrase is in the Bible. A significant amount of Christians believe that that phrase is in the Bible too. Maybe you thought that it was in the Bible. It actually is not in the Bible. Uh, that proverb is actually anti-gospel. That proverb is very much in line with human understanding and pretty much sums up virtually every major world religion out there. God does not help those who help themselves. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God helps the helpless. And the gospel is not only God rescuing helpless people, people who had no ability to save themselves, it's also about God rescuing a sinful and rebellious people, people who were enemies of God, people who actually deserve death. 
folks, I deserve the lake of fire. And I deserve the lake of fire every bit as much as Adolf Hitler does. And you deserve it too. But God, as Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. What you have described here is a resurrection. Paul says we were dead in sin and trespasses, but what did God do? Look at verse 6. God, it says, uh, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor that God would look upon his enemies, send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for them and rise for them, rescue them from condemnation, the condemnation that they deserve, forgive them of their sins, clothe them with Christ's righteousness, and adopt them into his family as heirs, seating them in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And it's all solely due to the grace of God and no effort of man. So if salvation is sola gratia, <clears throat> by grace alone, and man can't help God, or man can't help God to save man, if man is totally dependent on God for salvation, the natural question uh, to ask would be then, well, is man totally passive? I mean, we've been we're talking about what God does in salvation, and that's all well and good, but on a practical, experiential level, what must I do to be saved? Someone asked the Apostle Paul that question in Acts 16. What must I do to be saved? And Paul's reply is not, be good. Paul doesn't say, be religious. What does Paul say to that man? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In our Ephesians 2 text, Paul explains it this way. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is declaring that we are not saved through our works. We are saved through faith. You could also use words like belief, trust, hope in. And this is our next great sola of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. <clears throat> Can someone run and get me a cup of water? That would be awesome. I didn't know I was going to be yelling so much today. Thank you. <clears throat> Some of you knew that I was going to be yelling this much today. Faith is trusting in the work that Jesus does for you as opposed to trusting in your own work to save you. If, if you look at other religions, it's all about man working hard, climbing the ladder, climbing those steps bit by bit, step by step, good deed by good deed, until finally he, through his own efforts, reaches the top of the ladder and is received by God in heaven. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible says we are not saved by ascending the ladder of good works to be received into heaven by God as a result. Rather, the scriptures tell us about Jesus Christ descending from heaven to earth and to all who did receive him, the Apostle John tells us, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, at the end of the day... Salvation is not about your efforts, it's not about your will, it's not about your work, it's all about God's work in you. Your role is simply to believe and to receive. 
And for some people, <clears throat> for some people, that is going to be way too simple. Surely there's got to be more to it than that. Surely there must be more than just believing and receiving. Some in their pride may even be offended by a message like that. They would rather, they, they, they are offended by the notion that you contribute absolutely nothing to your own salvation. Some people would rather not rely on God uh, to do it all for them. Some want to be able to work and to earn their salvation instead. But I'm here to tell you, you really don't want to work for it. If you work, you will be paid wages. You will be. And you don't want the payment that is due to you for all your hard work. Because Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, you are still a sinner. And even the things that you do that you think are good are stained by sin. Which is why when men stand before God in the final judgment and all they have to show for it is their life, uh, is their own life and their own work, God will give them a payment for all their hard work and that payment is hell. You see, we don't take sin seriously. We don't take the holiness of God seriously. The 16th century Roman church did not take these things seriously. We want justice for everyone else who does evil, but we want God to sweep our own sin under the rug. And we think a few religious deeds, a few good works, church attendance, maybe a baptism, a few trips to the Lord's table, uh, eating the bread and drinking the wine for communion. We think those things are going to make us fine and God's going to turn a blind eye to the mountain of sin that we've accumulated in our own life. And that will not happen. If you want to go through life on your own, and if you want your status with God and your entrance to heaven to be based on you and what you do and what you bring to the table, good luck with that. The wages of sin is death. But we are even in worse shape than that. <laughs> because our condemnation is based on more than just our individual sins. Our condemnation is based on who we are united to. And the Bible teaches that all of us are united to Adam. Remember him? Remember Adam? Book of Genesis, first couple of chapters of that book. The head of the human race, he ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though God told him not to do that. Adam committed cosmic treason against the king of the universe in his desire to be a god. And what had God warned Adam about in the very beginning? The day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely... You shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. Adam ate the fruit. He sinned against God. He experienced spiritual death. Uh, he experienced that immediately, and he became relationally separated from God. And 900 years later, Adam's body, which was meant to be immortal, turned back to dust when he dropped dead physically. And Adam's sin unleashed physical death and decay and disorder into the cosmos. And even more horrifying, a spiritual death that all men enter into this world with, and that spiritual death is climaxed in hell. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And the Bible sees Adam as a head of the human race, as a representative. So we are united to Adam when we come into this world. We are in Adam, so to speak which is why we come into this world as sinners from our earliest years. It's all because of this connection that we have with Adam. 
And Paul describes the connection this way in Romans chapter 5. He says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That phrase, all sinned, is talking about more than just your personal acts of sin. We were in Adam when he sinned. He was our head. He was our representative. And what is true of Adam is true of all men. He sinned, we sinned. He was relationally separated from God, so are we. He returned to the dust after 900 years, so do we, after 90 years or less. He became an enemy of God, so are we. He faced the doom of eternal death and hell, so do we. Adam receives wages for his work, and so do we. But while the wages of sin is death, Paul makes a glorious announcement right after that in Romans 6.23. He says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you have wages which is linked to work. You, you, you work and you get paid what is owed you. In this case, death. But what does God contrast wages with? He contrasts wages with a gift. And how is a gift different from wages? Think about this in the physical realm. You, when, when you get a paycheck from your employer, that is payment due for your work. Now, a gift is the opposite of that. A gift is, is something that is totally unearned. In the spiritual realm, you have wages and you have a gift. If you want to work and get what is due to you, you will get hell. The other option is the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that eternal life includes forgiveness of sins, fellowship and reconciliation with God, and eternity with Him in heaven forever, resurrection from the dead, and all you must do is believe and receive it. And for some of you in that, this room, that is truly good news. Some of you have done things 20 years ago, and the guilt of those sins still haunts you to this very day. Some of you have done shameful things this week or this morning that have burdened you with conviction. Some of you realize that no matter how many good things you do, it's, it's never going to make up for the evil that you've, you've done. No good work, no good deed, not church attendance, not becoming a monk, not punishing yourself, not New Year's resolutions, absolutely, positively, nothing you can do to save you, and you know that. And in your guilt and shame, you cry out, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But there's a lingering question. How does that happen? How does belief Save me. What's so special about belief? It still seems like God is turning a blind eye towards my sin and he's just sweeping my sin under the rug because I believe? You said, Deemer, that God is a God of justice. Well, where's the justice that I deserve? What about that mountain of sin that I've accumulated in my life? How does faith alone take care of that? Well, remember how I said earlier, that our condemnation is based on who we are united to? As our condemnation is based on who we are united to, so our justification is based on who we are united to. We are condemned because we are in Adam. To escape that condemnation, we need to be in someone else. We need another representative, and that other representative cannot be 
another sinner. If our new representative is just another sinner, then we're in the same boat and we're still doomed. We need a man who is totally righteous, perfectly holy. We need a man who, unlike Adam, resists the temptations of the serpent and believes in the word of the Lord. And that man is the one who is sometimes called the second Adam, Jesus Christ. He is that man. The thing that unites us to Adam is birth. You come into this world born a sinner. The thing that unites us to Jesus is the new birth, being born again, which happens when you believe. So faith is the means, the instrument that unites us to Jesus. Let me take you back to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, now, here's verse 15, uh, skipping down to verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And here's the glorious climax in verse 18, Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So this is huge, guys. What is Paul doing here in, uh, in Romans 5? He is comparing Adam and Jesus. He's comparing the two great heads of humanity. You have Adam and you have Jesus, and he is comparing how the one man, uh, the, the one, one act of each man automatically accounts for, or automatically counts for all those who are connected to him. Adam sins, and all who are in Adam are condemned, not merely because of their own individual sins, but ultimately because of Adam's sins. In the same way, Jesus does not sin. He is righteous, and all who are in Christ are justified before God, not because of their own individual acts of tainted righteousness, but ultimately because of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is credited to you or imputed to you in the same way that Adam's unrighteousness was. Now that's all well and good, but still there's the question, well, great, but what about my sin? You still haven't answered the question, Deemer. Does he leave my sin unpunished? No. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin, he's talking about Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here we have a double imputation. God imputed our sins to Christ who knew no sin, and God imputed His righteousness to us who had no righteousness of our own. Now, when did God impute our sin to Christ? On the cross. 
Jesus suffered on the cross as a sinner on your behalf. God is reckoning or counting our sin towards Jesus. And so there's an exchange that's happening. But after the payment for our sins is complete and the justice of God is satisfied, we see that Jesus doesn't remain in this state of being counted as sin. Jesus says, it is finished. The payment has been paid. And death cannot hold Jesus, and he is raised from the dead. And if everything that is true of Adam is also true for all those who are in Adam, then likewise, if you are in Christ, things that are true of him are true of you. Ellie and Preston Pierce will be baptized today. I'm not making them come forward. Don't worry. Don't be scared. But they're being baptized today. And as we baptize them, we are making an announcement. We are announcing that Ellie and Preston have been united with the Lord Jesus through faith, and the things that are true of Christ as their representative is true of them. We will witness in this baptism service later on a picture of death and resurrection. When Ellie and Preston are put under the waters of baptism, what are we doing? We are announcing that those who deserve death and judgment have already died and been judged in Christ. Christ has received their judgment on their behalf. Their sins were imputed to Christ. But then after we put them under the water, we raise them out of the water. And when we do that, we are making an announcement. We're saying there is more to the story than that. Christ did not stay in this state of judgment. He paid the price for our sins. And then what happened? Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to new life. And because Ellie and Preston are united now with Jesus Christ, they, with Christ, have been brought safely through the waters of God's judgment and are raised to new life. And they're not only raised with Christ, but as Paul says, raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only are Ellie and Preston raised to new life spiritually in this age, but they, like Christ, will experience a resurrection from the dead in the age to come, and they will rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a great picture, Preston and Ellie. Something for you to look forward to. Now, why does God do this grand and wonderful thing? Why does He take dead, rebellious, Satan-following sinners who deserve death and hell, why does, he, why does He do this for them? God would be so right to throw me in the lake of fire. He would be so right to do it right now. I'm so deserving of that. Yet what does God do? God takes me, He takes you, He takes Ellie, He takes Preston, He takes the Apostle Paul who was a blasphemer and killed Christians, he takes us and He raises us from the dead and breathes new life into us. He awakens our spirits. He forgives us. He unites us to Christ. He seats us in the heavenly places. And He gives us, His former enemies, the right to become children of God. Why does He do such a thing? There's an obvious answer. And then there's a less obvious one. The obvious answer is because He loves you. Despite your sin... Despite your spiritual ugliness, He has great affection and passion for you. And He loves you more than you love you. We know that part. 
Here's the other part we sometimes miss about why God is doing this wonderful thing. God has another passion. As much as God loves you and is passionate about you, there is something that he is even more passionate about and he is even more zealous for, and that is his glory. And that brings us to the final sola of the Reformation, sola deo gloria, the glory of God alone. Don't get scared. I know I'm running out of time. This is going to be a short one. But Mark, we will have to cut out one song. I had so much to tell you guys. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. (laughs) This is good stuff. All right. The glory of God alone. Paul says, Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Don't miss that phrase at the end of the verse, so that no one may boast. God does the saving, God does the raising, God even gives the gift of faith to the believer so they can actually believe, and this leaves no room for the believer boasting. Even my own faith, I can't boast about. That too came from God. If there's any boasting to be directed at anybody, God wants the boasting to be directed towards Him. God saves you to show you how great and wonderful He is. God saves you to put his glory on display. Turn with me to one final scripture, Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 1 is all about a subject that is near and dear to my heart. It's about adoption. And in this case, it's about your adoption. Did you know that you were adopted? Listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. He's going to tell us about this adoption that God has done for us and how he has saved us. And Paul, on a number of occasions in this passage, tells us why he's doing it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. There it is. With which he has blessed us in in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There it is again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Over and over again, Paul is reminding us why he is doing this. I'm going to end with a, uh, a quote from John Piper uh, talking about Ephesians 1 and God adopting us for his glory. He says it's so much better than me, so that's why I'm quoting him. But I want you to listen carefully to this. He says, God adopted us in our unworthiness 
to make His grace look great. You were adopted for the praise of the glory of His grace. God's action in adopting us is radically God-centered and God-exalting. I know that many hear this and think that it is not loving. How can God, seeking to exalt Himself, be loving? The answer, I want you to hear this carefully. The answer is that the glory of God is what we were made to see and enjoy for all of eternity. Nothing else will satisfy our souls. Therefore, if God does not exalt himself for us to admire and enjoy, then he is unloving. That is, he does not give us what we need. We are adopted by God so that we will rejoice that God made much of us. We are adopted by God so that we will enjoy making much of God's grace as our Father forever. We are adopted so that in this family, the Father and the unique elder Son, Jesus Christ, will be the source and focus of all of our joy. We are adopted to the praise of the glory of His grace. It will take an eternity for the glory of that grace to be fully displayed for finite people. Therefore, we will be increasingly happy in God forever and ever. Sola Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. It all goes back to the glory of God, and thank God that it does. Never let it be about us. Let it be all about Him. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much for this time, and thank you for your word, and thank you so much that you took sinners who were in rebellion against you, who hated you, who were enemies of God, and you came and you saved us. You came to our rescue. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Help us never to forget where our salvation comes from. Help us to remember that it's not about us, it's all about you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in proclaiming the message of this salvation, of this grace that is available freely to those who don't work, but those who believe and receive. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just respond to what we've heard. We're going to see Marvelous Light. Um, I wasn't planning on doing this song, but I think it fits really well with what we've been talking about. Yeah, you guys are welcome to stand. Here we go. I once was fatherless, a stranger with no hope. Your kindness wakened me, wakened me from my sleep. Your love, it beckons deeply, a call to come and die. By grace now I will come, take this life, take your life. Sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. From the grave you've risen victoriously. Into marvelous light I'm running. Out of darkness, out of shame. By the cross you are the truth. You are the life. You are the way.
dead heart. My dead heart now is beating. My deepest stains now clean. Your breath fills up my lungs. Now I'm free. Now I'm free. Sing that again. My dead heart now is beating. My deepest stains now clean. Your breath fills up my lungs. Now I'm free. Now I'm free. Sin hasn't lost its power. Death hasn't lost its sting. And from the grave you've risen.